It is a great honor to be back here preaching to you God's Word today. Uh, we have been spending time, for those of you who are new here, in the book of James, asking ourselves the question of how to walk in wisdom together. And so if you've spent any amount of time growing up in the church, you will know that the reality of division in the church is something that causes devastating harm. Uh, maybe you remember best friends, family members, pastors and elders that have caused or have been the recipient of great spiritual damage because of division in the church. And for some of you, these memories are, are the most difficult to manage. I'll just speak for myself. That's, that's definitely the case. Um, you know, our modern day deconstruction movement in Christianity, astonishingly, is not about non-Christians in their opposition against Christianity, but rather large portions of Christians who grew up in Christian homes, who went to Christian schools, who listened to Christian music and watched Christian television shows and still found themselves rejecting the faith. So why is this? Uh, James 4 is presenting us with some of the whys, and it also gives us something greater to pursue as a community of Christ. But uh, before we begin, uh, could you pray with me? Um, Father, uh, may the preaching of your word remind us of the gift of grace given to us. Uh, we who are filled with envy, evil desires, enmity and hatred towards you and others, Lord, you give us grace. Uh, so may we live as those transformed by that grace. May your word pierce through our hearts and minds, and our souls and our strengths. Uh, may your word be living and active right now as it is preached to your people. Let the Holy Spirit stir our hearts towards peace. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Um, I was in Cincinnati this week uh, for uh, three days at a conference for pastors. Uh, this was uh, an organization called Matthew 5.9. Uh, if you're familiar with that verse in Scripture, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And this is a new organization which is trying to answer the question amongst pastors of how did the church become so polarized over the last several years? What are some of the dynamics at play? And how uh, can the church un un maybe unwittingly be acting just like the world in division and enmity and strife and hatred. And so we had all of these amazing guest speakers and, and, and you know, Christian pastors and leaders, people who are at the front lines of the study and the research of toxic polarization in this country. And, and for, for like three, you know, two, three days, we, we were just steeped in this talking about this, and, and all these pastors are going, oh my goodness, I get this now. I, I begin to understand what's happening in the churches. And then on the last night, we all had dinner together, and we were all just sitting together, and a Baptist pastor and a Presbyterian pastor were talking together, and they got to somehow into the discussion of baptism. Now, you can maybe imagine how this conversation go. Even though we had spent like two, three days talking about toxic polarization, how the division has hurt the church, how all of these things are affecting us, these two pastors got into an argument about baptism. So much so that all the other pastors around the table were feeling very, very uncomfortable, right, as this, as this was going on. Now, thankfully, these two brothers laughed it off once they realized what they were doing. 
But it speaks to this idea of what is going on within the church. We often think of enmity and hatred and polarization as sort of being the problem out there in the world. Or in the context of James and our passage today, we think of the problem in the church as, as being outside of our walls, that we hold the solutions and the keys to peace. If only the world would listen to the church about our counsel and our direction, then, then you know, we would see peace that would destroy all this polarization. But, but in doing so, we often regularly find ourselves in a state of naive delusion, neglecting our own faults the church's own rebellion, the church's own lack of judgment on these issues. So James 4 is really a continuation from last week about what it means to live wisely, that the work of peace comes from wisdom from above, not from the brilliance of our own mind. And so there are three things in these 12 verses in James that we really wanted to talk about. Here's, here's the first thing. One, what are the disruptors of peace? Number one, what are the disruptors of peace? Uh, number two, uh, who brings peace? And three, uh, what the work of peace looks like. So what are the disruptors of peace? Who brings peace and what the work of peace looks like? So let's take a look at our first point here, which is what are the disruptors of peace? Verses 1 through 4 mainly talks about this. In verse 1, James recognizes the community which he's writing to is, is quarreling and fighting. And, and we don't know the nature of the conflict that was going on. Um, these are uh, letters that were spread out to the diaspora. But James isn't concerned with the outcome of the conflict as he's more concerned about the heart of the conflict. He's not concerned about the outcome of the conflict as much as he's concerned about the heart of the conflict. We don't know what sides were formed in the churches that James was writing to, but James isn't going to be an impartial, neutral referee. James instead says to both parties, the problem isn't the them, it's the us. The problem isn't the them, it's the us. Now before I want to move on, I want to emphasize something that I've been saying in the book of James over and over in our time here, and I, and I want to make this very clear again. Because James is writing to this scattered group of churches across the diaspora, while the letter of James might have a lot of individual application points that us as individual Christians can follow, James is concerned about more of these principles of wisdom being applied to the corporate church. I, I can't stress this enough because it's too often, especially in American evangelicalism, James is treated as a self-help book. And to do so would divorce it from what it was intended to be. These were letters written in the church for everyone to experience together. In fact, in almost every you you see in James, every time you see the word you in James, almost every single one are the second person plural form. So this is where our Bible translations can sometimes be unclear. This is maybe the one time where I would say that Southern grammar is actually very helpful in our reading of Scripture, right? Every time you see a you, you're going to replace it with a, see you guys now, right? Y'all, right? It's a, it's a great Southern word. Over the last two years of living in Charleston, I've come to embrace y'all as a very biblical word, right? Because it will change the way you read James. It will change it. So when James says in verse 1 that what causes quarrels and fights among you, it's actually what causes quarrels and fights among y'all. Now we're being biblical. In particular, it's your passions at war within y'all. 
That word for passions, by the way, is not just a word talking about strong feelings. The word that James is using for passion is allowing the pursuit of selfish pleasures to disrupt peace. So passions is about selfish pleasures wanting to disrupt peace. Think of it as a sort of an immature, whining church that is so fixated on their own way that they sort of steamroll and combat anyone who shares any bit of disagreement or discord against them. I mean, think about sort of the worst preaching that you've ever heard. You know, sort of churches that almost exclusively talk about what they're against so much more that they never say what they're for. So James's main disruptor of peace, and he's trying to communicate this point here, is that the greatest threat to peace is more about what is happening inside the church than what's happening outside our church. So James is saying that before we head out into conflict, before the quarreling occurs, we need to check ourselves here. What passions are at war with the wisdom that God has called us to live in? What selfish pleasures are are so blinding us that we as a church are ready to fight anyone who gets in our way? Because the condition of wicked, passionate, selfish desires bleeds itself into natural consequences. Look at verses 2 through 4. Y'all desire, so y'all murder. Y'all covet, so y'all fight. Y'all do not have because y'all do not ask. Y'all do not receive because y'all spend it on y'all selfish passions. These are the result of the inward heart of the church manifesting into the outward actions of pain and misery and death. And this kind of passion leads to the destruction of the church itself. There's a connection here of envy with the war, uh, uh, with war, because that would have been in line with the culture and the thought of the Greco-Roman Empire in which James is writing to. The writings of the Greek philosopher Plato demanded that the logic of envy competition was, by nature, the elimination of your opponent. Utter destruction. So James is saying that what is considered appropriate by the spirit of his age is not the way that the church should be directed. Now, we know, by the way, that this isn't just a theory, especially if you've spent any sort of significant amount of time in the church. Ask any Christian who has attended church for any period of time, and it won't take you long before you reach a sense of heartbreak over division, conflict, discord, and even spiritual death. How the church listened to the philosophy of their world when it came to disagreement, and it tore apart the inside of the body of Christ. The the broader church has done this to the destruction of its culture and society. Think about how churches protected abusers and traumatized victims. I mean, look at the report coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Our own PCA denomination report on domestic abuse. How the church used the Bible in discussing ways to protect a pastor's belligerent behavior in the name of church growth. See the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Um, so, so church family, th- this means for us that we need to do a bit of reflection. We, we cannot be too busy trying to play church that we forget what is happening inside of our own hearts. Have we forgotten already that because Christ has made peace with the Father for our sins, that we as a church cannot be succumbed to petty divisions that have wrecked havoc and discord amongst the thousands of churches that have closed its doors, especially in the past two years. The uh, social research group Over Zero, uh, which is an organization which studies how polarization leads to violence in communities, 
uh, notes that division is subtle conditioning that takes the concept of us and them into destruction. And here's how this works. What they study in the research is that us and them is actually useful in societies because it does help create distinctions. You need distinctions to help us understand the world that we live in, right? Us and them. There's differences between male and female, different ethnicities, different likes and dislikes, right? You need to have a distinction between a toilet and a water fountain. That's helpful, all right? We need us and them. Uh, Even us versus them isn't necessarily a bad thing, according to their research, because it can promote advances through competition and technology, economics, athletics, right? Think Washington Commanders, my team. Sorry for all of you Ravens fans, right? Versus the Ravens, all these different kinds of things. But, but what they found in their research is when it becomes us or them. And that's when it becomes destructive. That's when it leads to violence. When it becomes us or them, the conditions are rife for violence and harm. And you hear it in the rhetoric that you see around us, Right? Think of your polarized podcasts. It's never about what is good about the other side. It's either us or them. In order to protect our wives and our children, this blank group must be destroyed. And we see that all around us. So how much have we, the church, embraced that posture within our walls? How much have we missed out on the opportunity to demonstrate a peacemaking gospel? So a couple of questions for us. Have we gotten so prideful in our own understanding of the gospel that we forget that people we stand shoulder to shoulder with, singing God's praises together as we just beautifully did this morning, that those people are in the same need of the grace and mercy that you do when you arrive this morning? Do we want to only have the gospel change the hearts of people that agree with us, that we really like, or is the gospel for everybody? Is this peacemaking for all people, even those who sharply disagree with you on secondary issues? You know, we love Scripture because of its truth, but sometimes the truth hurts because the truth is talking about us. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. James is not employing a smart church growth strategy with this statement. He's not reading Barnard Christianity today. He just goes out and says it. You adulterous people. He's using the language of the Old Testament prophets who would call the people of God adulterers for forsaking their relationship with him. Israel, the church, was supposed to be like a faithful bride, and yet they've chosen to be like the rest of the world in conflict, and in doing so created war against the very God that was granting them peace. Their passions have exceeded their praise. They would choose the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life rather than union with Christ and peace among its people. So James is reminding uh, them and us, the greatest threat to peace is more about what is happening inside our church than what is happening outside our church. And the truth does hurt, but it's only when we get to that place where we can start to live wisely and be honest about ourselves, and it's only when we're honest about our condition that we can begin to move into verses 5 through 8 and move on to our second point about what brings peace or who brings peace. Verse 5 begins by asking us to remember the source of wisdom, and that is the Word of God. Perhaps you are wondering what specific Bible verse is being quoted here in verse 5 when it says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. And some of you might be troubled to know that a specific verse like this in the Old Testament and New Testament doesn't exist. 
But that shouldn't make you worry or fear. James is simply quoting Scripture's teachings and using phrases like Scripture says to summarize the, com- the, the combined teaching of the Word of God. So like Exodus 25, For I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous. And 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that God's Spirit dwells within you? We do this all the time. When we talk about Scripture, we synthesize and combine verses together. This is what James is doing when he's quoting Scripture. And James is summarizing the whole of Scripture in the Old and New Testament to show that the answer to unrighteous jealousy which leads to death is a righteous jealousy that leads to grace. See the difference between the two? Unrighteous jealousy leads to godless division. Righteous jealousy leads to God dwelling within us. Unrighteous jealousy leads to war. Righteous jealousy makes peace. Unrighteous jealousy leads to legalism. Righteous, godly jealousy leads to grace and peace. The promise of this text and the reminders of how abundant God's grace is is that he gives more and more of it. This is a grace in verse 6 that is given to those who are humble enough to recognize that they need to receive it. This is a grace in direct opposition to pride. It's a grace that causes us to submit ourselves to the only salvation and source of grace that we can find, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace that gives us the strength to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we we draw near to God that he will draw near to us. The promise of God is that those who are weary, broken, humbled, will find peace in the arms of their Savior. The promise of God is that for those of you who are fed up, tired of the division, and just done with everything, that he will draw near to you if you come to him. The promise of God is that in response to our envious and straying hearts that we pray and humble ourselves as a church, he will be near to us because he is faithful. He gives us more grace to envious, divisive, unjustifiably angry sinners like us. He gives us more grace when churches fail and divide and hurt others. He gives us more grace because that is what grace is. It's undeserved. To quote Thomas Manton, grace is nothing but introducing the virtues of God into our soul. So Christian, does this not change the heart and posture towards one another in the church? Will we draw near to God and let go of our desire to control the destiny of our lives, to control our church and its politics, to control our families? and surrender your agenda and give them to God who gives us grace for each and every single moment. Can we stop condemning ourselves and our struggles and give up on our own self-sufficiency and run to Jesus? Will you go to the giver of grace and receive it because he is generous to give it to you? This is the invitation and the good news of the gospel. God invites you to receive his grace. This is offering is, is free for every single person here today. God knows how messed up the church is. God knows the disruptors of peace. He knows that we will pursue foolishness. And yet, he invites us all the same to his heavenly home to receive grace for our sins, for our shame, from the punishment and guilt we deserve. Because even though he knows our selfishness so intimately, he 
longs for the church to be the vehicle in which grace is dispensed. Why? Because through it we see the grace of Christ working in ways that will break through individual selfishness, individual pride, individual ugliness to come together as the body of Christ. And what does Christ promise? To do greater works than he did. So the question that is raised for us in this text is, will we as the church receive his grace? Will the church rise up beyond partisanship, polarization, beyond disputes that are secondary issues, beyond hatred, and move towards the gospel? So what does this look like practically? This is our third point here today, verses 8 to 12, is what does the work of peace look like? Verses 8 through 12 gives two exhortations and two labels. We are to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts because we're both sinners and double-minded. That's the two exhortations and two labels. Now, Scripture, when he's talking about cleaning our hands, we're not talking about Purell and Lysol, the uncleanliness of our our hands there. He's reflecting back, uh, James is, to the Levitical law in the Old Testament, which calls for sacrifices to be only made by priests when they they have to make themselves hands clean when they give sacrifices. Coming to God requires purification. Through your hands, sacrifices were offered. Through hands, objects were declared clean by priests. And and through hands, others were ordained for ministry. So James here is recognizing that sinners need to be cleaned. Hands need to be clean. Then reflecting on their sin and their enjoyment of sin, you need to, as sinners, recognize my hands are dirty. I am guilty. That we move towards mourning and weeping, as this text says, that the sins that we used to laugh about, the sins that we've enjoyed so much in every way is actually sin that we should have a godly shame for, a godly rejection of. You know, it's kind of like looking at the old photos of the clothes that you used to wore in like high school and elementary school. Have you ever done this? Um, You look at the clothes you go and you're just like have a godly sense of shame. Like, what was I thinking when I was wearing this, when I was in elementary school, true story, like, I had, like, this bowl cut, like, Pinocchio suspenders, like, shorts that were, like, had, like, a death grip on my thighs. Like, it, I was, like, I looked like the Korean Harry Potter. It was, like, really, really awful, right? You know? I had this godly shame of it. That's the kind of shame that we need towards our sin of division and polarization. When the church looks back on its history, they say, How could we not see it? How much did we as the church need the cleanliness of Christ? We must repent as a church for our history and our lack of love towards one another. We must repent as leaders of the church, pastors, elders, deacons, for the ways that we have failed in serving and loving its people. We must never allow ourselves to think that we as a church have nothing to apologize for Nothing that we couldn't approve on. Nothing that we are weak in. Because when we start believing in our own power, instead of the power of God at work within us, the church does horribly demonic things in the name of God when God has nothing to do with it. Churches that we know exist that continue to plague our world with its evils. Churches that plant itself in poor and desperate communities and demand that these poor and desperate communities give them all their money. 
We see that all in our culture. Churches that play guilt and shame upon those struggling and battling mental illness and depression, saying that their struggles are because of a lack of faith rather than a thorn in the flesh. Churches that proclaim Christ wasn't enough and that we must do so much more. Churches that hide abuse and fail to hold leadership accountable for the carelessness of bad shepherds. The churches which fail to defend the orphan and the widow to welcome the stranger, to be generous to the needy, to put false dichotomies between justice ministry and faithfulness to the gospel. Churches who fail to give to those in need, churches who fail to love those who created in the image of the Imago Dei and all of its beautiful tapestry. It is the fatal flaw of pride within a church, and it leads to a fall. This is why James is stressing stressing so much in this passage, humility for the church. Because when you are humbled by your sins, the promise that God will exalt you becomes true and real in verse 10. And when you do, you start realizing that the church starts looking a lot like Jesus when we do this. We submit ourselves to God in humility because the Son submitted His will to the Father. We resist the devil by remembering the one who avoided the temptations in the desert. We draw near to God because of the God who came down to earth to draw near to us. We cleanse our hands by putting on the hands of Christ who were nailed to the cross for us. We purify our hearts not through effort with our own blood, sweat, and tears, but through the effort of Christ and His blood and sweat and tears, we put on humility by putting on the humility of Christ and clothing ourselves in his righteousness. To see that Christ is our great brother who takes all of these selfish passions that war within us, takes our pride and shame and our ungodly laughter and tainted joy and places and all of that. And he goes to the cross. He weeps for us. He mourns for his people. And because Christ has made a right relationship with us to the Father for those who have come to him by faith alone, this power is now in you, y'all, to be a bringer of grace and peace to a watching world. This allows the church collectively to rise and stand up against the evils of the world in winsome humility rather than worldly harshness. So, let us mortify all of those desires. How do we do that? Verses 11 and 12. Stop speaking evil upon one another. You see, James echoes our former discussion on the role of tongues that we talked about earlier in our text here in James. The Christian cannot be spending all of his time finding new ways to destroy each other from within. The Great Commission is a call to go and be with people to give them the peacemaking power of the gospel. It is not the commission to go and tweet about that Christian we are really annoyed at and called stupid at every social gathering. It's not secretly harboring ways to ruin the lives of fellow believers. It's not a call to be territorial about the people and ministry that God has given to us. It's not a call to go out in ways in which we are more talented, more capable than that group over there who are doing things differently than we are. Church, we are not in competition with any other believer because our victory is already secure in Christ. We are standing side by side with other believers, marching to Zion together. And all of us have a different limp, but we're doing this work together. Pastor Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, recalls the story of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. 
Um, who, if you don't know who R.C. Sproul is, he comes from a theological background emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And he was asked a direct question about the late Billy Graham. If you're familiar with Pastor Billy Graham, you'll know that Billy Graham focused a lot of his ministry on the human free will choice of man. So there's a difference between Dr. Sproul and Dr. Graham. And he was asked this question, R.C. Sproul, he was asked, do you believe that Billy Graham would be in heaven because of their theological differences? So Dr. R.C. Sproul shocked the crowd at first by saying, no, I don't believe that Billy Graham will be in heaven. And there was this, <gasps> like, big, like, roar. But then he continued, as only Dr. R.C. Sproul would, and says, you see, I will not see Billy Graham in heaven because Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away from the throne of God that I will be lucky to even get a glimpse of Billy Graham. I think that was really clever. Right? What is R.C. getting at here? There are differences that are real and maybe differences in the way that we do church together and those differences can create us and them but it leads to greater humility when we talk and speak to one another. This is why we pray for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who may come to different theological conclusions that we do. Why we pray for gospel-believing, gospel-in-action churches that may be in different denominations. Why we pray for Presbyterian counterparts who hold and cling fast to the truth of God's word and our Baptist friends, though they don't sprinkle, right? Our non-denominational friends who are ironically listed now as a denomination. Um, these are all churches that we can pray for. We can pray for different methodologies, different approaches. We can hold secondary matters in an open hand while acknowledging that convictions do matter. And we can stop villainizing brothers and sisters in Christ who come to these different conclusions. James is calling against the inclination of many of us that take place in a, the role of God when we make judgments against one another. When we make judgments that God does not make to do so would say that Jesus on the cross isn't enough, that our sense of justice, our sense of judgment is more righteous than Jesus. And when we've done this, we have now placed ourselves over the law of God. So, think about how this could practically look in our society, in our world today. I'll give you one example um, as I end here. Um, in 1964, the polarization in the country of Colombia and South America reached its breaking point. One people, a group of people called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia began guerrilla warfare efforts. And for the next 50 years, over a quarter of a million deaths would be responsible over senseless decades of guerrilla warfare. People were essentially born into this conflict. They were pulled from their families and homes, given extremist views to dehumanize and justify kidnappings, car bombings, forced abortions, violence against indigenous tribes. Um, you can imagine the struggle of how do you bring peace in a society when war is the only thing that you've known? How do you break peace into that, these rebel groups that have extremist thoughts that one would think would never, ever change? How do you change the course of a life headed for violence? Well, it turns out, in order to change it, what you do is you give them a baseball card. A baseball card with a picture of these gorillas when they were children with their families around Christmas time. 
when they are most likely to be lonely and reminded of home, reminded of the comforts that they missed when they chose a life of insurgency and insurrection, reminding them of the child that they were and what could have been. And on these cards were a statement written by parents, mothers and fathers of these guerrillas, which led to the greatest demilitarization period of Colombia's 50-year history of warfare and dissent. The statement was just one phrase, and I apologize my Spanish as I say it. Antes de ser guerrillero eres mijo. Before you were a guerrilla soldier, you were my son. In 2010, um, it was the greatest period of demilitarization because what the guerrillas realized that they had a different identity. They weren't guerrillas. They were sons. They were daughters. They were children. And so they put down their arms and went home. In that way, verses 11 to 12 reminds us of who we are as the children of God. Before you were polarized into politics, you were a child of God. You belonged to the body of Christ. Before you had sharp disagreements about societal issues, you were the, fa- the son of the Prince of Peace. So what does it look like for us to, to, to look at the issues of the disruptors of peace with 